The Mac Observer is Mac Geek Gab, number 214 for Monday, August 10th, 2009. <laughs> Greetings, folks, and welcome to the show. I'm Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire, with Pilot Pete sitting next to me. John Braun is here joining us from Fairfield, Connecticut. There he is. How are you doing today, John? Meh. Meh. Not bad. All right. Meh. It's just a meh sort of day. It's actually kind of an icky day. Good day to be indoors. It was hazy, hot, and humid today, which was the, the excellent. H, yeah. That was yeah, excellent. Yeah, if you're into that sort of thing. Oh, was, uh, you know, it's the first one of the few that we've had here in New England this this year. So I I, I welcomed it with open arms. And in well, less than was... three weeks, we'll be having frost. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, very good nice. beach weather. I'd say good beach weather, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And it's supposed to be the same tomorrow. And tomorrow it's train weather for me. I am uh, taking Amtrak down to Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, yeah. Right? No. Yeah. Trenton and then and then carring from there to uh, Princeton, where I'll be speaking at the Princeton Mac Users Group meeting tomorrow night. And, uh, John, you are roped into joining us via Skype. What? <laughs> I think we have a bad Skype connection. Couldn't. Can't hear you. Yeah. They, they, you know, they initially, well, of course, they reached out to, to us to see if we could both come. And, and uh, it was hard to coordinate our schedules. And so we said, all right, I'll, I'll just go. And uh, and apparently they that confused, uh, you know, some some things internally there. And, and they're like, oh, we'll just do it, you know, with John over Skype. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is like a month ago. I'm like, no, 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 no. We don't want to make the cornerstone of the meeting some piece of technology that's, you know, bound to fail. That's harder uh, than it looks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot harder than you guys make it look. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we get this done every week here. But, you know, working with a, a, a unknown bandwidth and uh, who knows what the microphone situation is. And I'll have 45 minutes to set up in there. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Yeah. We want to have a successful meeting. So uh, I'll, you know, update my running your Mac lean, clean and mean presentation, which is great because I get to give it one more time uh, before I have to totally revamp it for Snow Leopard. But uh, but apparently it, that memo didn't sort of make it through all the ranks. And I th really I think that they just wanted to do this Skype thing. And so they just sort of uh, chose to not uh, over communicate this uh, this minor detail change. So uh, all the press releases that went out say that you're joining us via Skype, John. And by golly, we're going to make them true. Or at least we're going to try. <laughs> we'll see how I'll, it goes. I'll do my best. You and me both, brother. Uh, all right. So last week we had uh, a boot issue on a MacBook Pro, and I, I'm just going to let uh, Chris's answer kind of take it away. But but what's interesting is I don't think you said this during the show, John, but I think you said it during our show prep that the, the, what what Chris and uh, and Stephen talk about here might uh, might actually be the solution. So I, I'm just going to let Chris run with it, and then we'll you and I'll take it from there. Sound good, John? Go. Hey, John and Dave, it's Christopher with MacWorks in Minneapolis. I'm calling about Greg's MacBook Pro issue, the one where he can boot from a USB drive, but he can't boot from a DVD or a uh, the hard drive. And my feeling on this is that uh, it's entirely possible, and, and excuse me for not knowing, but I should probably know this, but... You know, in some cases, the optical drive and the hard drive are on the same bus. And I know for certain I have seen issues with optical drives not working when a hard drive is cranky. So if he has the gusto to crack open his MacBook Pro and disconnect his hard drive... Um, he should try booting then from the DVD, and if he's able to boot from the DVD with the hard drive disconnected, then I would be going for a new hard drive in that laptop. That's my thought on the issue. Great show, take care, and cut me off. All right, uh, and I think we had Stephen also say the same thing. Right, John, where Stephen Wright writes, wrote, I, I think I know exactly what the problem is because something very similar happened to me. About six months after I bought my MacBook, the hard drive died. Like the caller, I tried booting from a DVD, but that also failed, so I assumed something was seriously wrong. 
The Genius Bar, however, said they were not at all surprised that both failed simultaneously. Apparently, when the hard drive dies in certain ways, it often makes the optical drive stop working as well, even though it's not damaged because of the way the devices are daisy chained. I think they said it has to do with the DVD drive being a slave device on the ATA bus and the hard drive being the master. Anyway, I bet once the caller gets a new hard drive, whether under, under warranty or not, the DVD comes back to life as well. All right. So uh, now it's time for us to talk amongst ourselves here, John. What do you what do you what do you got? Oh, I think what, what they're saying, and, and I'm going to speculate here, um, is that it, what what we have is a dual um, potentially uh, either a controller of the same technology with multiple devices on it or, or perhaps slightly different technologies like SATA and now what we call legacy PADA, parallel ATA. Um, but I don't see why there couldn't be the same uh, or, you know, different devices on that bus. And if one of them disrupts the bus, and I think that was the suggestion, the other one gets confused. And there's a few things that, that happen sometimes automatically, but, you know, if the hardware shot, it may be, you know, disrupting the rest of the bus. So maybe one thing, you know, either master slave or ju just that they're, they're, you know, on the same chip. I did a quick look and there are, you know, cards and boards that, that do both. But um, perhaps you want to try to pull uh, though, you know, I'll step back and I'll say taking apart my MacBook is something I, I tried recently just for the heck of it. It's not that bad. The hardest right. part is keeping track of all the screws, but you may want to disconnect one or the other device and see if, by pulling one off, the, the, the one that's uh, faulty, it'll temporarily re-enable the other device. So uh, I th that would work if, if they're master-slave, though, and they're not uh, on cable select, meaning that the drives are actually jumpered, one to be master, one to be slave, then if we pull the master out, um, well, actually, you know, the slave might just jump up. Uh, back in back in the old days, it could. Yeah, I think I was able on on MS DOS machines with two buses. I remember being able to set the CD-ROM to a slave on a masterless bus in in some situations. So it might work, but it also might not, uh, depending on how the controller wants to see things. Um, but it, yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, you're right. If if the drive has bad sectors or something and is constantly reporting errors or you know whatever's going on. I guess it's possible that uh, that that's going to you know interrupt, which is what interrupts do uh, the data flow to uh, to and from the DVD, right? Exactly. Or exactly. it's just a you know, as with anything, doubly, it's a short, right? Is always the problem. And uh, right. as Pete says, and actually, yeah, the take apart instructions I got for were from uh, is it uh, I fix it? Yep, I fix it. Yes, yep. printed them out. Very nice diagrams, uh, step by step. Um, I did one thing that was kind of bad, but it worked out. You need a couple of different types of screwdrivers to do this, both yes. a Phillips head and uh, sometimes a hex screwdriver. I happen to have, I, I think I'm going to call it my Magic Max screwdriver. It's a flat blade screwdriver that just manages to fit in all of the different screws. <laughs> I don't know if that's using advisable. It in a Phillip well, yeah, it can be done. Well, that's why I'm saying it may not be, but but right. you know, using a flat blade screwdriver on a Phillips, I don't think is too bad as long as it's you know the right general shape. Sure. Using it in a hex screw, yeah, you got to be careful because you don't want to strip anything. But it 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 worked. Hey, cool. Well, that's awesome. Because yeah. I, I think I was looking for a T6, and I don't have a T6. I think that's the smallest screw. Yep. Yep. On that thing, and that's an unusual. I mean, I have you know multiple drill bit sets, but the, they have a T9 as usually the smallest. So. And anyway. T T8 was the one that opened up the SE30 and the Mac Plus and the original Mac, right? It was a long-handled Torx T8, if we're going with our, our trivia here. Is that right, John? I thought it was an 11. I don't know. Uh, I think it was a long-handled Torx. I, I just seem to remember that. I still have one. It had a had a green little little handle on it. It had a really long shaft, and it, it would, you know, fit into the handle there where the uh, on the Mac SE30. I, I haven't used it in... Probably a decade, but I have trouble getting rid of it. It's one of those, you know, one of those things. You did say something, though, John, uh, back on point here. If you're going to take your machine apart, you said something very interesting when you were talking about iFixit's instructions, and that is you printed them out. By golly, that is probably the best thing you can do, because even if you have a second machine, let's say, heaven forbid, <laughs> something happens, the monitor blows out, whatever happens, now you are lost. 
And, you know, as much as there is on the paper that you are going to rely on, there's also quite a bit in memory, too, right? In your memory, in your human memory. As you go through this stuff, you're going to, you know, remember, oh, yeah, that's how this fit together. That If you have to wait three or four days to reassemble it because you didn't have the instructions printed out to kind of step you along, man, it's probably not going to go so well unless you've done it a hundred times already. So I like that little comment, John. That's good. Sarait. Sarait. All right. So now we get to three bits of three items covered in one email, uh, all from the last show. Sarah writes, two things occurred to me as I listened, but really it was three. Uh, number one, the fellow with the MacBook Pro that wouldn't sleep. We had a MacBook Pro. It would sleep once and then it wouldn't sleep again. I have had this problem. And for me, it turned out to be the simplest issue. There was an item in my print queue. And the computer just wouldn't print and wouldn't give up trying. Deleting the item from my print queue fixed the issue completely. Hence, when my daughter-in-law was having a similar problem with her iMac, it was the first thing I looked at, and behold, there it was. An item in the print queue. Fixed. Just a thought. Should we talk about this, or should I, should I read the whole thing, John? You got anything? Well, we're here talking about it. I paused already, so we might as well talk. You got any thoughts on this? You paused? Well, I didn't pause the show. I mean, I paused in the middle of her email. Everybody can still um, hear us. Other than how to get to the print queue, I mean, the way that I do it usually is, uh, there's probably a couple of ways to do this, but uh, system preferences, uh, print and fax, and then you'll see a list of the devices on the left. You double click and it, it should show you the queue for that device. Uh, yeah. Or you leave it hanging around. Uh, just mentioning off the top of my Usually I, I only deal with these when um, you know I'm printing something. It comes up and, and I think it usually... Doesn't no, I think they do hang around. I guess it depends. It, it depends. Actually, if you um, now when you say hang around, uh, John, I think you're referring to it, you know, staying open as an application in the dock, right? Yes. Okay. So if you print something and the printer hangs around, uh, or if you want it to hang around, right click on the printer when it's in the dock, and you'll see there's a little check mark, check marks, check marks. That's check mark and check box put mm -hmm. together, folks, for those of you playing along at home. Uh, and you can uh, tell it to leave this open in the dock or auto quit when printing. And I forget what the name of the, the item is, but it's it's fairly obvious and self-evident. And and uh, I think obvious means it's self-evident. Oh, auto so, quit. Yeah, there it is. There you Thank go. you. <laughs> so, yeah, I just brought a printer up. Okay. Choose choose auto quit and, and put a check mark by that. And that's how that works. Yeah. Wow, you're good. Hey, man, we just bounce it back and forth here. All right. Yep, yep. Uh, Sarah. Sarah number two says one of you mentioned with sadness, uh, and this was to you, John, a piece of software, peripheral vision that indicates when a device is connected or disconnected. And that bit of the software is no longer going to be developed or supported. I have been using hardware growler to give me notices as to when devices are connected, disconnected networks, etc. It works with no problems at all, as far as I can see, and might be a good substitute for the absence of peripheral vision. What do you and so John? I know you saw this, and we had a couple other emails. And thank you all for writing in. Uh, um, go ahead. So far, I installed it. So first off, of course, you got to install Growl. Not everybody likes Growl. That's um, right. Yeah, that, that's right. It's important to note that this is uh, this hangs off of of Growl and is actually in it, it's in the Growl installer. Right? Where did you find it, John? Um, it's actually in a folder in the Growl installer. I think it's extras, and uh, and it's a folder with a few things in it. Um, so you, you got to dig into the, uh, you know, and grab the application and then put it on your, you know, wherever applications or something like that. And then start up that growl application when you start up your computer, I guess would be the best time. And, uh, then when, you know, things are, you know, I, I, I so far I've seen USB devices mount and unmount and network devices mount and unmount. So I think it's, it's pretty much a duplicate, uh, cause yeah, as, as was mentioned, they, they don't really offer support. So. If you don't have it already, which I do, along with keys that I assume will last <laughs> yeah. forever. <laughs> yeah. I hope. Uh, yeah, I hope they don't expire. That would suck. Um, yeah, so uh, so Growl is a notification system where some apps you can usually fine grain what they tell you, but it'll flash something in a you know predictable spot on the screen, usually upper right, I think, is the default. And then it slowly fades away. Um, some people who have things happening where they want to know, you know, if something important has occurred may want to do this, though it can get distracting and, and uh, annoying if uh, you have everything growling about everything it's doing. So, right. Yeah. So, you know, I have been a vocal opponent of growl, not 
not because of anything that they've done or that they've programmed it poorly, but simply because I don't like that that regular interruption. But I have found that uh, with a little bit of, of fine tuning, Growl has actually become my friend. Uh, you know, I, I have a super duper set to back up my machine every night. Well, I can have Growl um, send me notifications. Now, I have it do a couple of things. One, if the backup's successful, I just have it put a little floating notification in the upper right-hand corner. Usually, I see that when I get here in the morning, but it's a nice little reminder that, yes, confirmation, the backup worked. If it doesn't work, I have it send me an email so that I have this note somewhere else saying, you didn't back up last night, um, and and that, that's been very handy. The things where it really bothered me was things like, you know, Twitter clients or instant message clients or even email as new mail would come in. It would start stacking these growl notifications up. And that sort of drove me crazy. And that's why I always would uninstall it the moment I I put it on there. But uh, but I found it very handy, you know, spending and I really only spent five or 10 minutes going in and essentially turning off all the stuff that I didn't want and and then just adding the things that I did. So I I, I'm going to probably install this hardware growler, too, because that would be handy stuff to know. And it's not something I do all the time. So when I do plug it in, I want, I want to know that this stuff's there. Cool. So you've seen the light. That's good. I have seen the light. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, 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 and uh, basically you, that you're the only one that's, that's convinced me to see it. Nobody else ever, ever even tried. So I appreciate it. Uh, and then Sarah follows that up by saying just a big thank you for pointing me to busy Cal. It is great. It does what I've been wishing iCal would do since I gave up on now up to date years ago. And, and that basically echoes my uh, my thoughts from last week. I, I, I'm loving the betas of BusyCal. It's been so much better. So, uh, but it is time to talk about our first sponsor for the night, John. And that is Barebone Software with BB Edit version 9. Now, they're up to version 9.2. And, and there's a couple of things that they've, you know, they've, they've, They've added a lot to to BB Edit over the years. It's it's their their workhorse app. I think I don't think I know they use it to do all their programming because BB Edit is at its heart a very robust text editor. Uh, one of the things that that is sort of the cornerstone of what it does is it automatically recognizes, or you can tell it manually, what language you're programming in, and that can be Java, JavaScript, HTML, C, Objective C. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. I mean, it, and it really does. It's a huge list of stuff. But uh, whether you're doing simple, you know, and when I say simple, I mean, in programming terms, simple HTML or you're, you know, going nuts with Objective-C, uh, bare, bare Bones BB Edit will figure out what language you're in and then start highlighting the text and coloring things and tabbing things along with the constructs of, of that language. And then if you build, say, functions or uh, if in HTML, you build a table or something like that, you can actually, it'll see that and you can fold it all up so that you can say, okay, yeah, this table is good. I'm just going to use one of those little triangles that we use in the finder to untwist folder views. I'm just going to twist one of those up and boom, it rolls that up and hides the contents of it. But of course, you can see it when you want. BB Edit 9.2 adds a couple of cool things. It has a sleep command, uh, which you can use their preferences to remap to the command Q. So when you command Q, instead of quitting and closing all your active documents, it sleeps and really just saves the state of everything so that it opens up much more quickly and exactly the way uh, you had it before. So I, I did that almost immediately and, and love it. Um, there's also a new menu, a new command in the view menu called go here in terminal. If the active document is local as opposed to from an FTP server, you can go right there in the terminal. And then, of course, BB Edit has terminal integration. So if you're rummaging through something in the terminal and you want to edit it, you type BB Edit space and then the file name and boom, it'll open it up in normal BB Edit. But you can invoke it right there from the terminal. So BB Edit is available from barebones.com for one hundred twenty five bucks. If you have a prior version, it's thirty dollars to upgrade. And if you qualify for the educational discount, i.e. you're a student or some teachers, it's 49 bucks. all at barebones.com. All right, John, it's time awesome. to go into some of the new stuff. And I think it's time to talk, talk with Marcos here. Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> Get ready, folks. Marcos says, I've been noticing the strangest memory behavior on my MacBook Pro. Memory begins to fill up until it swaps. This happens when... Most when using Safari intensively with Flash or Java heavy apps like Azurius Views or OpenOffice. 
If I close programs, it almost never gets liberated. Closing absolutely everything has no immediate effect. I never identified one software application or resident in memory that had leaks. Uh, this, uh, he never found anything that had a memory leak. Logging out and back in doesn't help either. This happens since several updates to Safari uh, and other updates to no avail. Even doing a combo update did not solve this problem. Looking for the cause and or solution, I found that if I run the weekly script with Onyx, a huge chunk is freed. I checked the tasks of weekly scripts and came to the conclusion that rebuild locate database is the one that helps. You can do a rebuild locate database only with Onyx and it does the trick too. This happened on my previous MacBook Pro with two gigs of memory and have a brand new one that has exactly the same thing with four gigs. Okay, so it's time to talk about memory here. Um, Because I think he was a little vague in, or maybe not, describing when he thought there was not enough memory. I mean, swap is obvious, but um, I'm I'm wondering where he uh, was looking to determine that he was in a bad, you know, or low memory state. Yeah, and and to be fair, he didn't say. So it, it's possible he's got something else going on. But but let's operate at least for the 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 common good here under the assumption that we should talk a little bit about how memory is organized uh, in Mac OS X. This is something we've talked about before, but but I think there's there's a way to cover it here, John, that that sort of gets right to the to the meat of it, uh, if you will. So. Uh, the way I would start here, John, is it's important to understand that Unix will typically fill up all available memory regardless of how much is in use at any given point in time, right? If it can use the memory, it will. Uh, the theory is that if you load the data once, you might need it again. And if the memory is available to keep it just hanging around, then Mac OS X keeps it. If, however, it gets a request for a large chunk of memory from something else, it can eject that memory out and clear it out and, and, and read something new in. Uh, locate, from what I understand, this rebuild locate database command uh, requests a huge chunk of memory, and that tends to clean it out. I've heard other people say, yeah, just run locate. I think Michael Johnston was the first one to point it out to me when I was complaining about uh, my MacBook Pro uh, you know, going up to only, you know, 20 megs of, of free free RAM or something when I had two gigs or four gigs. And he's like, oh, just run rebuild locate and you can even quit it immediately. And it, you know, it, it's that initial request for RAM that just blows everything out. Um, it's important to make sure you're reading all this right, because it's possible that what you think you're seeing isn't exactly what you're seeing. Of course, that's what I think that's what you just said here, John. Activity Monitor will tell us this. So if, if you open up Activity Monitor and at the bottom, Apple calls them tabs. I, I don't know what I call them. There's, there's CPU, system memory, disk activity, disk usage, and network, and I choose system memory. This is in Leopard 10.5, but something very similar exists in 10.4. You'll see four types of memory listed, free, wired, active, and inactive. Free is truly free memory with nothing in it. Um, Wired memory is things, memory holding things that cannot be ejected. These things need to stay available to the computer. Active are things that the computer is using, but can be, if necessary, paged out to the swap space on your hard drive. Virtual memory slows things down a little, but it allows you to have more things open uh, than you would if you only had if you were limited to just the amount of RAM you had inactive is that cache that, that I mentioned where the system says, yeah, you've used this before. So uh, we're going to go ahead and keep it around until we need to free up this memory. So inactive can be considered free, even though it's not technically free. So do you have any thoughts on this, John, before we, before we dig even deeper, or maybe you will dig us deeper. Well, I noticed that it also if you look in that section in uh, Activity Monitor, there's that used figure. Yes. I don't know if you were going to talk about that. No. Well, I mean, well, used. Okay, so used in Activity Monitor is if you simply add up wired, active, and inactive. Yes. Right. I mean, it. You know, it is the difference between the total amount of RAM and the free RAM that you. That you but it's have. misleading because, as you're suggesting, right. and I think this is where a lot of the confusion comes in. Inactive is kind of free, but it's included in the used figure. But right. 
it's it's more flexible, I think, than than active. Well, yeah, no, I like that. It, it is. It's more flexible than active because it, here's the difference between active and inactive. If the system decides it needs RAM, it needs to use the RAM uh, that's labeled inactive. It can just jettison that stuff. It doesn't need to do anything with what's there. It just wipes it out and writes new stuff in. However, if it decides, no, I got to go and dig into the active pool here. Well, the first thing it needs to do, and this is how virtual, this is kind of the idea behind virtual memory, oversimplified, but that's okay. If it needs to dig into active, what it first must do is take whatever data it's going to blow away and save it off to the disk. And then it can put something else there. But when when the app that needs it calls for the data that we've saved out to disk, well, we got to do the same thing. We've got to read it in. Now, if there's room in inactive, boom, we can load it into inactive. Otherwise, we've got to, you know, page something else out to the disk and swap the uh, that that first chunk of stuff back in. And that's what can slow your machine down. Now, to be fair to Marcos, uh, I have seen situations where, you know, I've got, you know, over a gig of inactive And for some reason, it's still paging all kinds of stuff out to disk. I don't fully understand why that happens. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, John. In my in my understanding, and Apple has a knowledge base article that explains this and every bit of Unix uh, that I've ever, you know, dealt with or read about pretty much agrees with with this assessment that, that we've given here. But there are situations where you can have tons and tons of stuff in inactive and it doesn't go. So, um I don't know if you have any ideas on that, John. Yeah, all I know is when I see my page out start to increase, it usually results also in multiple swap files, and then my machine just spirals into a, a big funnel of suck. So that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 what happens. Yeah. So there there is some method to Marco's madness here of of running an app that's going to force it to eject everything that it can possibly eject, but that can also create a situation where you know, if you run the update locate or rebuild locate database script and it, you know, pages out as much as it can or frees up as much as it can, it might be that the update locate script asks for more that it can get. And so it's going to page some stuff out to disk too. That means it's actually going to slow down when you need to go back and get that stuff. Um, but I have found, he said that quitting apps didn't help. It doesn't help immediately, but it does help over yeah. time because if you look um and i'm trying to think if there's a way to tell this i know there is a way to tell this um i use menu meters to tell me how many swap files are in use um but there are there are other ways but menu meters tells you if you click on the memory meter at the bottom it says swap files and it'll say one you know x number of swap files present x number at peak usage and then it'll tell you how much swap space is used regularly i will see that my current number is lower than the peak number which means and i've seen it do this where you know kernel task or dynamic pager fires up and and does some house cleaning and and gets rid of some swap files that it doesn't need to have around anymore so um so the system does try to do this but it doesn't do it immediately it waits to see if you're going to need that swap and then if it doesn't okay well then it starts cleaning things up a little bit for you but reboot once a week. It doesn't hurt. That will clean out your swap. I guarantee it. Uh, it starts everything fresh. So, you know, I, I, I give this advice to a lot of people. You know, don't just reboot every time there's a, a software update. Reboot once a week, whether you think you need it or not. So, any, anything to add to that, John? And don't touch what's in slash var slash vm. Just, just don't. don't oh, touch. yeah, that's bad. Uh, you, you can look. You can just look. You can just take a peek. That's right. As if, as if it were a swarm of bees. Uh, all right. Moving on to Simon. Simon says, I was wondering if there's a way to shortcut to changing network devices. For example, from my airport to my iPhone tethering to connect to the Internet. Right now, I'm having to switch off airport and under the Bluetooth menu bar, click to connect network on my iPhone and vice versa when I want to switch back. I'd prefer a quicker way of doing this as I use my iPhone tether every day at work. Thanks all for the help. Uh, okay, so he's obviously doing something interesting. Maybe he's using NetShare, although I think NetShare did not uh, do it over Bluetooth. So who knows? Oh, Simon's in the UK. So he has legal tethering on his iPhone. So 
we all are jealous of Simon. Uh, John, you got some thoughts on this? Uh, my thought would be that the built-in facility of uh, in uh, OS X is place to start, and you would go to System Preferences Network. You will see a location tab. You should at the top of the screen. And you can edit locations. Now, I think when you get your Mac out of the box, I think it starts with default is your your default location. I think it's sure. automatic is the or one automatic? That it starts oh, okay. with. Okay, yep. good one, because neither of mine are called that. So Okay. <laughs> um, but you can create locations, and, and for, for each location, you can enable or disable the network devices uh, of your choice. So I'd, I'd say that's one place to look. Yep. It may always be an exact match, but, uh, you know, it's free. It, it, it's kind of obscure. But then what you'll notice if you go to your Apple menu and you click on your Apple menu, you will then see a location sub-menu, and you can choose from there quickly and easily. Maybe there are other ways to do it through shortcuts that I'm not aware of. Uh, that, that's, how, that's how I do it. Uh, I find it very handy. And, and like you said, once you've gone into the network system preference pane and configured it, then the Apple menu is the easy way to get there. Uh, we have talked about a utility called Marco Polo which tries to sense different um, environments and change your, your system settings, including your network location based on that. Uh, I don't know what your work setups like Simon or your home setup where we might be able to, you know, find some, some uh, settings that it's going to go and, and, and trigger from, but, but certainly I think this would be the easiest way to do it. Certainly easier than what you're going through now, Simon. So Excellent. Moving on, right, John? Where, where, uh, where, who do you want to go to next? Pick anybody from the list. Um, how about the next person? All right, we'll do the next person. <laughs> I need the answer. Okay, oh, all right. Then there we go. I, I, oh, I almost picked the wrong David. David writes, I have a quasi-Mac question that I hope you can provide a happy resolution. What if we provide a quasi-happy resolution? Uh, I had a friend record a story I wrote that I would like to add as a podcast to my webpage. The problem is the story is an hour long and comes in at a whopping 94 megabytes. I've tried numerous ways to compress it. GarageBand, iMovie, iTunes with no luck. It seems too large to post and people to download. Any suggestions you might have to compress it would be greatly appreciated. All right. You have the answer, John. You go. Well, Run just, with just it. start. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. what I what I heard when he started talking about this was, you know, let me look at how big uh, our broadcast is. So I looked at our MP3 version and our AAC version, both run about an hour. So that's a benchmark. And ours is a, a 64 kilobit um, MPEG, which is about 30 megabytes or about a 40 megabyte uh, at 80 kilobits per second um, quality AAC. So 90, I'm thinking, well, one thought, but you're the audio guy, but... My initial thought is he's using some crazy, high, inappropriate, uh, not highly inappropriate, but a high <laughs> inappropriate uh, bit rate that he doesn't need to. Because, you know, the, the higher that these numbers are, you know, the better qu the quality the sound is. But there's sometimes when you just don't need it. Like, I think even what we do, 64 kilobits is generous for, uh, for speech. I agree. They yeah. probably don't need that. I mean, old telephones were what eight kilohertz. I mean, that it, you know. Well, that's why they said not just so old bad. telephones, John. Current telephones are still eight. Oh, they didn't fix that. Well, no, you can't. I mean, you can, but mm -hmm. all that copper, it's still you know. I mean, all the switches out there, you'd have to fix it all at once. I don't. I don't think they have. I, I think it's all still eight. I don't. Yeah. I don't so know. make sure. Uh, yeah. So experiment with different rates. I mean, you know, get to a point where if you listen to it, you're you're not happy. Uh, and then just go to the next higher setting. Um, but right. yeah, that, that file size is monstrous. And then, and then you had another thought, Dave, what could be causing that uh, inadvertently. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm going to I'm going to step in here and say that Wiretap Studio from Ambrosia is actually a really cool app to use to figure out what bit rates work for you. Um, oh, yeah. I, they, and there is a free trial available. I was just checking this out. Um I remember when they demoed it to me real time live, they're they're switching bit rates and you can hear the difference. So record a file at, you know, and use Wiretap Studio. So it records records in a lossless format. Right. And then on playback, you can just futz around and find the settings that sound the best to you that are, you know, the lowest uh, possible common denominator. Um, now, I, I will agree with you, John. 64K is generous. The 80K, uh, I don't know why it is that. 
the a the AACs that Michael creates are eighty k, but but they are. They don't need to be. In fact, I don't send him anything. I send him a sixty four k AAC, but I think because of the way he converts it in GarageBand, it come comes out eighty. Uh, and maybe there's a way to, for him to to change that. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm sure there is, but uh, maybe it's not an easy thing, or or it's just simpler form. But anyway, 64k is enough. But one thing that we found, and we experimented a bit with this when we had to, because the iPod forced us to not release in mono. Uh, but we found that stereo is largely unnecessary for. A podcast, especially one where there's just one person talking and no music uh, to speak of that needs to be uh, to, you know, to be um, in stereo. But even with the two of us talking, we did a little bit of panning left and right when we were experimenting with stereo, John. And, and I, I certainly hated it. Uh, I, I think our listeners did, too, based on the comments we got. It certainly wasn't deemed necessary. And, and we've done very well with a mono podcast. So our podcast, if we were doing 64K MP3 if we did stereo, it would be double the size. It would be a 60 meg file. So uh, so that that's one way to to bring it down. David is is just compress it as mono and you should be able to take the existing file in garage garage band and do that. Uh, certainly, you know, as you move it into iTunes, you can you can do it there, too. So that that would be my thought. And like you said, John, the quality level, bring it down to 64 K and maybe it doesn't need to be best. Maybe it can, you know, come around. Use maybe use a variable bit rate encoding which is that VBR uh, setting that you find. And that can, that can help too. So is somebody playing music? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Hit the wrong button. <laughs> I did that last week. All right. Uh, are, uh, do, do we have anything uh, else to talk about on that one, John? No, I think uh, that about some of I was trying to check some stuff in iTunes. as well okay. as a uh, bit rate and uh, started uh, playing. I'm like, uh, yes. Huh. Yeah. Why'd you do that? That's a story, and you stuck with it's not it. What, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> now, was that Patsy Klein that was playing in the background? Uh, oh, you're so close. Oh, it wasn't. I thought uh, it was walking. No, it was uh, Tammy Wynette. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you know. Oh, very close. That, that's not bad for only hearing two seconds through my earphones. <laughs> Name that tune. <laughs> <laughs> or did you hear it through? No, I didn't blast you, did I? No, 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 no. Very, it was my earphones, faint. very faint. But yeah, I was just wondering what was going on. Um Oh, I see what the problem is here. We're we're uh, we're in, in heat mode here in the studio. Well, not heat mode, but Pilot not cold. Pete mode. set up the air conditioner and didn't cool it down enough. That's right. Yeah, it's mm. it's. I'm sweating in here. Like, what's going on? I'm not I'm, nervous. I'm cool. Let me turn on another pack. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, so our second sponsor for this show, after that brief intermission, there is a new sponsor. And it's Nodhead Software with Warranty Hero. And this is at nodheadsoftware.com. Warranty Hero is a piece of software that into which you log all of your uh, devices, TVs, anything that you've got that has a warranty. You can attach a receipt to it. Uh, the data is entered real fast. You just need the vendor name, the product name, the purchase date, and the length of the warranty. It'll calculate that out then for you and, and, and then trigger a little reminder when it comes back around. Uh, if you want it look nice, uh, they say you can invest 10 more seconds and Google for an image and then drag it in. Right. So you go out on Google, you find an image, you drag it in. Boom. Now you can visualize. Oh, yeah, that's my TV. That's my TiVo. You know, that's this. It's got a remind me feature, as you would expect with a product that does this, uh, that comes in hand in handy, especially for products that you only use once in a while. Uh, so you can check to see how much time you have left. I, I'm, I'm already starting to use this for our servers where I don't tend to think about, you know, when our, our service contracts expire. So you can put service contract anything that's a time based uh, thing, especially where you've got multiple years, even a subscription, right? Uh, if you've got, uh, you know, your TiVo lifetime service or your TiVo, uh, you know, annual service or something like that, you know, if you, if you pay for a year or two, you put that in there and then it reminds you, okay, yep, I've got that coming up. Uh, it refreshes the data every 60 seconds without chewing on your processor, or at least it doesn't chew on mine. And uh, if a product is broken, you fire up Warranty Hero and instantly see whether or not you have warranty. And if you want, you could also have the receipt and the serial number stored in there, too. So Warranty Hero is available at nodheadsoftware.com. Uh, it, there is a 30-day free trial, of course. Uh, 
The price on it is $14.95 for a single user license, and you can get a household license for $19.95. And the household license uh, gives you permission to install on all the Macs in your household. So even if you got six Macs, you're good. You can install it on all of them. So, you know, and, and again, you know, your your consumer electronics are obvious here, but but, you know, even if you got like water filters in your fridge or medicine that you need to uh, to be reminded of, you can you know, the, the possibilities are, uh, are are pretty vast here. Nodhead software dot com warranty hero. That's where you can find out about it. And we uh, we're excited to have them on the, on the show as a sponsor. And thank you. Wi-Fi stuff, John, is that where we're going next? I think that's where we have to go. Okay. All right. So David, a different David, writes, I have three Linksys routers at work, and they, this would be the royal they, I assume, the powers that be, want them all linked across the campus. I have been working on this for four days. We are running the DDWirt firmware on them, and I thought you might help me out. Just to clarify, we are trying to link them all under one SSID, and it is not working. The computers just join the one that is the central one and not ones on the outside or the repeaters. I think I've done something wrong, even though all the routers see each other just fine. We're doing this with three routers. We know this by checking the signal strength and where the Mac addresses are showing up. Okay. Uh, you you want to start with this one, John? Or, or uh... I'm going to suspect, though, this is a little sketchy on the detail or I'm just... I'm just it is sketchy on the details, yeah. I think what is being attempted here because this is one of the things that DDWRT had before Apple, but I think Apple has this now is a, is a wireless way to distribute things called WDS. That's, that's one, that's one possibility. So let's run with that. Yep. Yeah. Now, if you're doing that, the, the only recollection I have, and I haven't been doing that for a while. I did roll up my sleeves at one point because I was upset that the Apple equipment didn't do it. And so I bought one. Um, so I had an older Apple unit and I had a newer airport, uh, express, the express supported it, but the older Apple thing didn't. So I said, well, let me get Linksys. Um, the thing is you have to be very precise and I don't have all the gory details though. Maybe if you provide us with some more gory details, uh, the thing is you have to be very specific with the Mac addresses of each device, um, in terms of them not, not just seeing each other, but working properly, um, you know, be careful about the interfaces that are exposed, um, what side they're on. Sometimes a device may have two MAC addresses, one, you know, for the base and one to represent, you know, a, a, a relay point or something. And there are different types, too. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think like there's like a, a relay type and, and there, I think there are three types with varying levels of extensions. And uh, the recollection I do have with the Linksys stuff is that. It didn't work. It wasn't very friendly with the Apple stuff if it wasn't on, I think it was channel one in this bizarre case. And it could have been in the release of firmware from Apple. Who knows? But if I didn't have it on channel one, it just would not ever, ever work. The other reason it wouldn't work is that I didn't get the Mac addresses exactly right between, uh, you know, the device, uh, the various interfaces. You know, be sure you got the right ones. Uh, I think what I did one time is I, I put in the wired Mac address instead of the wireless, which are very close sometimes. But uh, right, right. So there's a stab at it. It's a, it, it can, uh, you have to be disciplined and, and, you know, try to find a working example online somewhere of, uh, you know, screenshots of, of how you can set that thing up. That's what I think it's, that's possible. Trying to do. Yeah. So it, it, and if you're doing it that way, everything is going to be on the same channel. So it's very difficult from the computer, uh, to tell what router you're connected to. Uh, it may also be difficult from the routers to tell what you're connected to, but one thing you can do is use a utility like Air Radar. Uh, it will tell you not only the SSID name, but if there's four routers with the same SSID, it's going to list all four of them and it's going to show their relative signal strengths and their MAC addresses. And from within Air Radar, you can click on a router and force your machine to connect to that specific one. Otherwise, your Mac's just going to join the one with the, the highest signal strength. Uh, as we've talked about before. So uh, so that that would be the first thing I would do if you're not doing WDS um, and you've got a, a wired backbone. So if all three uh, access points or routers are connected to each other via Ethernet and simply broadcasting the, this signal across the backbone, 
uh, then you want them to be on different channels so that they're not overlapping with each other. And that makes it a little easier to 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 see them. Uh, you can also, in addition to doing this in air radar, once you've connected to a base station, you can hold down the option key and click on the um, the airport icon in your menu bar and you'll see some more details, which will include the speed that you're connected, the signal strength, the MAC address of the device to which you're connected, and then the channel. So hopefully with that, you can see, yeah, am I connected to, you know, which one am I connected to? And, and your Mac will tell you the, the MAC address of the router. So, so that's, that's one way to, to troubleshoot this stuff. And I know we've got quite a few of you out there that are, that are doing things like this. So, so I wanted to make sure we talked about this on air, uh, even though we have an email trail going with David uh, in the back channel as well. Any anything else to to add there, John? I think Apple has a good guide on how to do this, so uh, I have oh. to find a link to that. It's All right, a, a pretty good generic, you know, WDS. Yeah, you know how to set it up and why you'd want to set up different devices uh, in certain roles. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I know the um, the that DDWRT firmware that I that I love so much. In addition to just doing straight WDS, it has a couple of different bridged repeater, unbridged repeater modes that are a little more flexible than than what you get just in the Apple interface. But but either way, as you said, John, it you have to be very disciplined. Uh, the security settings all have to match. The MAC addresses have to be tied the right way to each other. It's it's not um, you get one thing wrong and it simply doesn't work. So moving on to John, is it time for John, John? Yes. Okay. John says, my wife has noticed that sent emails aren't always being put into the sent items folder. When I looked in console, it gives me the error. Error null occurred while trying to append messages to outgoing store, ignoring and preceding delivery. The time of this error always coincides with the time of the missing sent message. She relies heavily on sent messages so that she can quote customers uh, what was said in a reply. She's using an iMac mailbox with our hosting company, Roshan. I haven't noticed the same problem with my identical account. I've tried repairing permissions and I've compared the settings, but everything seems identical. It's about five to 10% that go missing and they do seem to arrive at the destination. Mail is set to never delete sent messages. Okay. Uh, This gets interesting. So with IMAP, there's an option to either store the sent messages on the server or on your Mac. Uh, In a perfect world, storing them on the server is preferable because that way you get the benefit of seeing everything you sent in one place. So if you have, mail clients and you know at home and at work and they're all talking to the same server that sent box if everything's storing to the server will be uh, cloned uh, around the world but for experimentation john what what i would say is try setting your wife's account to store it locally and the way you do that is you go into mail you go to the mail menu you choose preferences you go to accounts you go to mailbox behaviors you're almost there and uncheck the store sent messages on the server box Uh, Then close the preferences window and it'll ask you if you want to agree to this change. And you say, yes, see if the issue still exists. Uh, If it does, then you know that the issue is local to your Mac. If the issue doesn't exist, then you know that it was some issue was storing out to the, the server. My guess is that it probably is local to your Mac, um, especially if you're not having the same issue on the server, uh, unless, unless, the server is at quota, right? You, your wife might have a fixed quota of, you know, uh, 100 megs uh, for her email on this IMAP server. And if she's at that limit, then it is going to throw an error when she tries to write. Now, mail's usually pretty good at interpreting that error and telling you that you're over quota. So, you know, that's probably not it, but that's worth investigating because if that's the case, then you're going to be tearing your hair out trying to solve a problem that you can't solve, you know, at least not in this way. But assuming it is a problem on your Mac, highlight the sent mailbox, go to the mailbox menu, right? Yeah, uh, Mailbox menu. Yep. And choose rebuild, which is all the way at the bottom. That's going to re-index that box, rebuild it. And uh, and that might fix it if there's some file corruption or an index that's gone bad or uh, something like that. That that's my thought. I know you don't use mail, John, but do you have any any general thoughts on on this one, too? Not on this one, but on the next one. Okay, then we will move on to the next one. And I'm finding Jeff's question here. Hey, guys, this is uh, Jeff from Columbus, Ohio. Hey, I've got the uh, Bluetooth blues here with my 15 inch MacBook Pro, and I was hoping you could help me out. 
A couple of months ago, I started losing uh, my Bluetooth connection to my Mighty Miles Hand keyboard. It happens uh, once or twice a day. I can restore the connection by turning off Bluetooth and just turning it back on. I can also restore it by simply opening up the Bluetooth preferences. As soon as I open up the preferences, the Bluetooth is uh, restored. Now, I know Bluetooth is prone to interference, but it happens both at work and at home. Um, I was hopeful that the recent uh, Bluetooth uh, firmware update 2.0 uh, back in June would solve the problem, but uh, no such luck. It's uh, still the same as always. Obviously, it's not a huge deal, but it's annoying, and I've been uh, unsuccessful trying to determine what the root cause is or, or why it you know, started after having the, the laptop for over a year. Um, in case it matters, I'm running 10.57, and it's a 2.5 gigahertz laptop that I bought in February of 08. Hey, uh, thanks for the great show, and this is where you cut me off. All right, take it, John. Mm-hmm. 10.58 update has an item, and uh, it's a support article, HT3606. Not HT3606. You know Was it 3606? No, it couldn't be. No, it is. <laughs> yeah. No, we had another one before that you were really shocked about. I know we can't. We can't. But um, but can't they had an item here, which to me, I I you know trust that Apple fixed this because the item in the description of fixes is improves overall Bluetooth reliability with external devices, USB webcams and printers. And to me, the mouse and the keyboard are both external devices, so I I think that'll fix it. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with I that. Faith in, and and actually, we're we're Jeff did write in and um stated that uh, i believe it was jeff but it was somebody who uh said yeah i think my bluetooth is working again because i think we suggested this to him already awesome awesome one of us um of course you know rebooting sometimes fixes problems so yeah uh i don't think it's uh, i mean th these devices i i haven't been really thrilled with them i mean they warn you in in enough time before the batteries are totally shot as far as i know they you know they won't go totally dead yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. Do they warn you? I don't know. Yeah, I, it depends on the device. I think, right? It, it. I don't. Now, you uh, know, one, one little cut. You mentioned this, and I think that, or, or one of us went to a, a, a briefing for the the machine. You, you could try turning off Wi-Fi and see if it stops doing it. If that's even an option, it may not be, because I think the the portables tend to to swap, or, or you know, use one antenna for Bluetooth and another for Wi-Fi. If you're trying to use both. That's what Apple has told me in the past. Yeah, there's there's two antennas, one in each side of the screen bezel. Um, and uh, it will use one for Wi-Fi and one for Bluetooth. And it swaps them depending on which one is best for Wi-Fi. So Bluetooth definitely gets lower priority in the presumption as well. You're close enough anyway, and it's a different protocol, so it doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, but yeah, you never know. That, that switch... You know, that that brief intermission might be the thing that's causing some of these devices to to drop off and not reconnect. I I don't know, but but that the Mac definitely does that or at least used to before 1058. Uh, so maybe maybe that's what they changed or maybe they simply, you know, changed the, the timing of that that uh, that swap or what have you. I don't know. But yeah, you know, I I would. I would also say if you're if you're having issues like this, a combo reinstall can do it, uh, can fix it. If it's, you know, a damaged extension or something that's just not set up quite right, that combo reinstall can really be a, a beautiful thing. You know, we, we saw this. I, I think Jeff's question came in before 1058 was released uh, late last week. What uh, let, let's talk a little bit about 1058. Have you have you had any issues with it other than just having to install it and, and go through that, John? I mean, for me, it's been rock solid. Um, I did it through software update. Oh, hey, man, you like to live dangerously, dude. Uh, I I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. I, no, I we live. tell everybody else to, to wait and download the combo updater. Well, that's why I don't do that, because everybody's downloading the combo updater. <laughs> Okay. So no, I did that. I got a couple of errors because, as usual, the servers were dogpiled, and you okay. know it would be like integrity errors and stuff. But it eventually downloaded the whole thing, and then it applied it. The only thing is that I got a double reboot. Yeah, I think I had that. I think I had and that. I think Pete even said he had. Uh, Pete, you had a triple reboot. Yeah, 
I, I had a three boot. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I never heard of it. You know, we got to start. Okay, we got to make it a a rule. Anytime we do, and I'm always hesitant to do this because it, uh, you know, you don't want to mess with it. You just want to leave it alone. But uh, on a, you know, if you do command V when your machine starts up, it doesn't put the splash screen up. So you can see all the terminal stuff that goes by. And we've talked about this before. Right. We need to make it a policy that at least you and I, John, and we'll try and rope Pete in along on, on this train. Sure. Too. Why not? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, because Pete's just going to come to to us to fix his computer when it, when we break it because of this. So it doesn't matter. Uh, it's the same net effect for for John and I that we just have to deal with some broken one computer. more machine. That's right. Uh, so command V. When when there's software updates that force reboots, let's do this command V, especially, you know, these point releases of the OS where we have an yeah. inkling that it's going to, uh, you know, that it's going to do a double reboot and watch that screen and see what we see. Maybe even film it so that you, know, you can you can yes. zoom back in. Right. Yeah. We'll get really geeky about this. We've I'm, we've I'm failed our it. listeners thus so, far. Well, you know, the, I mean, there could be another update. Could be. Maybe. I mean, Snow Leopard's coming out, but uh, isn't uh, Tiger up to dot eleven? I was just going to say, we've seen Tiger updates since Leopard was released. So I, I would I would say with almost certainty that we'll see 10.5.9. Yeah. Yeah. Unless Apple goes out of business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it's that's, that's, that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen, actually. I'm pretty they sure. Are, oh, man. Yeah, so, we talked about the financials, didn't we? I think so. Yeah, I think so. They were great. They're, they were, they're, yeah. Despite being in a recession, I guess people can still uh, afford phones and music players. And hey, hey, there's talk the nice uh, the econolypse is over, you know, and that we're digging out here. The so. econolypse. Yeah, that's that's is my... that like economy and apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. I love I love that term. It's just a recession. I mean, oh yeah, but that's not how it's been treated, man. It's, it's the it's been the econolypse, or at least it was the beginning. Well, the problem is too many people panicked. Right. Well, that's why I call it the Econolypse. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Oh. I think it's time. I got to go. I got to be on a train early tomorrow morning. And, uh, I, you know, You're I was training cra- it. Very nice. I was crazy. I, I got an offer for a gig down in Hampton Beach on Wednesday night, and it's a late start. I don't think we start until 10 or 1030. Um, there's a Johnny Lang and, and uh, George Thurgood are playing at the Casino Ballroom next door, so I'm playing at the Boardwalk on, on Wednesday night on Hampton Beach. And so we'll play after that show's over. So I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that gig. But it's sort of crazy to wake up in in uh, Princeton, take a bus to Trenton, take a train back, then a bus, train back to Boston, then a bus from Boston back. So, uh, and I figured out a better way for you to get up here, John. This crazy whole running around in Boston, the, the way Boston works with the train, for those of you who don't know, and most of you probably don't care, but I'm going to tell you this anyway, John. Uh, is you get the train to South Station, and then you yeah. have to, on your own, you have to get on the subway from South Station to North yeah, Station. Yeah, orange. I think it's an orange yeah. line. Yeah, it's the hokey pokey for like six stops. It's yeah, not that bad. exactly. Well, but here's the better thing. So, if you get off at South Station, you go upstairs, there's the CNJ bus terminal. It leaves right from there, and it comes to Portsmouth. So or or Dover, which is right nearby, and they leave every hour as opposed to the trains, which, you know, leave four times or five times a day or something. So you get a, you know, totally. Yeah, the bus is so much better. There's free Wi-Fi on the bus, too. So you don't have to traipse around town. And I really haven't done the bus thing. I've done the CNJ bus. It's great. So I I highly recommend it or at least Mm. considering it. Uh, Okay, so I'm in Princeton tomorrow uh, in October. On the 15th to the 17th, uh, John and I will be at Blog World Expo, and you can be there, too, and you can get 20% off your ticket at, for using or by using the code ObserverVIP. Uh, so go ahead and check that out. Uh, last week, I was on uh, three different shows, but since I've talked to you, you folks last, I was on uh, Sean King's show, Your Mac Life, on Wednesday night. Uh, on Tuesday afternoon, I was on Fox Business. I think we talked about that, right? I, mean, I believe we, so. I think we talked about that because we did the show Tuesday night last week. And then um, and then I was on the Blog World Expo podcast on Friday afternoon. So you can check all of that out and, uh, wow. and then some. Yeah. Well, aren't you the rock star? Uh, it was a busy week. <laughs> yeah. What can I say? Nice. Yeah. Uh, so come to uh, Blog World and, and uh, New Media Expo. It should be uh, should be a whole lot of fun. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go outside though. 
Yeah, because it was hot the last time we were in Vegas. We had 90 degrees today, so yeah, must be. Yeah, that's good though. We like the we like that. It's good. It's Four seasons, fun. right? If you want to contact us, you can call 206-666-GEEK, which is? 4335. But you know, I think I'd, I'd rather, especially with a voice recording, I, I think you should email us. And you can email us, Dave. I believe it's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You that... didn't just say feedback at MacGeekGab.com, did you? Uh, as a matter of fact, I did. Okay, great, because that's what the address is. That's perfect. You can Skype us to MacGeekGab, and of course, you can leave us iTunes comments. We love those iPhonealley.com is where Michael Johnston hangs out when he's not converting this show to AAC for you and for us. Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software, Disc Label from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, Pathfinder 5 from Cocotech, and Warranty Hero from Nodhead Software, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And John, I think that's it. Is that it? That about wraps it up. Excellent. Let's get out of here. This is the time when I'm supposed to be flipping my pen in the air, right, John? I can't say. Are you aiming for the ceiling? Make sure if you're flipping it, you don't get caught. Made up. I don't know why that overloaded. <laughs> you got caught. <laughs>